0: Okay, over here. Just just go out. Just start. Okay. Hi, Andy. They, they just pushed me out here.
1: Yeah, um, okay. So, um, hi. I'm Andy.
0: And I'm John. They're giving me the wrap-up signal. We haven't even done anything. We can't what?
1: wrap up. We're presenting. All right, just go faster. Yes, okay, fine. Hi, I'm Andy. And I'm John. And uh, we're the hosts of Settling the Score, a podcast where we discuss the great film scores. And we're so honored to be here a few hours before the 94th Academy Awards.
0: Yes, on our show, and they're rehearsing a dance number. Okay.
1: Oh, that's going to be good. Wow, look at those stunts. Okay, just go, just go.
0: Oh, um, the nominees for Best Original Score are... Isn't there going to be music? There's no tape. There's, oh, they're just going to edit
1: it later. I see, they're going to edit it. Fine.
0: The nominees are Don't Look Up, Music by Nicholas Britell.
1: Doom. Music by Hans Zimmer.
0: Encanto. Music by Germaine Franco.
1: Madres paralelas, Parallel Mothers. Music by Alberto Iglesias.
0: And The Power of the Dog. Music by Johnny Greenwood. Do we even have the envelope?
1: There's no envelope. It's just... Okay. uh, We just say. Uh, And apparently the winner is... Oh, apparently it doesn't matter who the winner is. Okay.
0: Okay. We're done. (laughs) Yeah, I mean... Gosh, Andy. That, uh... That sounds maybe about right that it doesn't matter who... Ins- I, I admit I kind of don't quite know what to make of this field of nominees. Well,
1: the point there was that this is more or less what ABC television makes of the field of nominees.
0: Yeah, it's true. My understanding is that ABC gave the Academy an ultimatum, basically, and said you must cut the show down. You can't put all of the awards on the air. Nobody cares. So the score award is one of the awards that television executives officially think that you don't care about
1: yes apparently people don't care that much about the academy awards anymore and so it would be nicer if there were fewer academy awards on the academy awards show
0: yeah i just don't think anybody's gonna be happy about how this works out because i just can't imagine that like the ratings are gonna go up because
1: yeah it's hard for me to imagine someone who's like i never used to care about the oscars but now that i hear there aren't as many oscars i'm pretty curious to check it out No, I'm sure it's that they have people turning the TV off too early in the show.
0: Yeah, I mean, to be honest, that's a problem that I am worried that we're going to have, is that people are going to be uh, turning off our podcast in the middle because it is going to be too long.
1: Uh, What can we do about that, John?
0: I don't think there's anything we can do about it. I think we're just going to, we got to talk about all these things. Let's get to it. Let's get right to it. What did you think about these movies? What do you think about how how film scoring goes in the year 2022?
1: (sighs) I don't know. This is our annual extra long, less prepared, more irritable episode. So yeah, brace yourselves.
0: Yeah, now with extra irritability, I fear. You you may have to brace yourself (laughs) extra hard coming up here, if I'm not mistaken, Andy.
1: Yeah, not the whole time, but some of the time. Yeah, one of these is going to be no fun, but we'll, uh, we'll get it over with.
0: We'll get the whole thing over with.
1: Let's get it over with, just like the Oscars want us to.
0: I kind of felt like uh, the scores for these movies had a lot of blobbiness to them. There's a lot of blobby music these days.
1: all right, you might you might have observed a trend there, you know
0: in different ways, in different ways.
1: yeah, I mean some of them are decidedly unblobby, though, so mm. uh,
0: all right, I guess that settles it. Some of it is blobby, but some of it is not as blobby okay all right andy what's what's first on the docket?
1: as usual, we'll be doing these, in the order the academy always lists them, which is alphabetical order. Certainly at the top of my alphabetical list of these movies is Don't Look Up.
0: Don't Look Up was produced by Adam McKay and Kevin Messick, and it was written and directed by Adam McKay.
1: It stars Leonardo DiCaprio and Jennifer Lawrence as scientists who discover a comet on a collision course with Earth, and Meryl Streep, Jonah Hill, Kate Blanchett, Mark Rylance, and others as horrible members of a society incapable of saving itself from certain destruction in a totally unveiled allegory about catastrophic climate change.
0: Music by Nicholas Britelli. Well? Well, hey, uh, <laughs> I'm sure you remember, Andy, that we uh, talked about a Nicholas Bertel's score a couple of years ago for uh, If Bill Street Could Talk.
1: Of course I remember, yeah.
0: It was great. We both really loved it.
1: Quite a beautiful score, yeah.
0: It was beautiful. It was really moving and well calibrated and interestingly achieved, and we had a lot of terrific things to say about that.
1: Yeah. It brought a lot of feeling to that movie. The feeling kind of created the movie. It was a movie all about being surrounded by and drawn into those rich feelings that he created through the music. And I thought it was really wonderful.
0: Indeed. And he's done other great work with Barry Jenkins, like for Moonlight. And indeed, he's worked with Adam McKay in the past.
1: I haven't seen those, to be honest. I've never seen the big short.
0: I like the big short. I thought the big short was successfully navigated. That was a difficult topic. And he brought a comic tone to it in a way that was stomachable.
1: He Adam McKay or he Nicholas Bertel? Both. Both.
0: But I was thinking of Adam McKay when I said that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, hey, look, Step Brothers is really funny. I also wanted to say that. Uh Uh-huh. I just wanted to get those things, you know, said here.
1: Those are nice things to get said, yeah.
0: Yeah. Are we done?
1: (sighs) It would be nice. No, I think that we owe it to the show, and it's worth uh, doing the show to talk about this movie, Don't Look Up, and its score. That's our assignment. Let's meet the assignment.
0: Well, it's our assignment because the Academy nominated this score as one of the five possible best scores mm-hmm. in consideration for this year's award. That's the source of the assignment.
1: Yeah, that's right. We kind of throw ourselves at the mercy of the Academy when we do these episodes and say, tell us what to do them about. <laughs> and, of course, then we spend the whole episode saying, and the Academy is stupid.
0: Yeah. <laughs> all right, so let's, uh, those are all of our... Uh, positions here? Yeah. What uh, What happens next?
1: Uh, we're hemming and hawing because I had a pretty rough time with this movie. Mm-hmm. How did you do?
0: Yeah, me too. I, uh, I found this movie intensely, intensely unpleasant.
1: Yeah. I feel prepared to say that I feel injured by it, mm. misused by it, harmed by it in some degree. Not things I would usually say about a movie, but it's pretty intense a feeling I came away with.
0: Uh, I mean... I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, and accordingly
1: angry at it.
0: Yeah, I have anger here too. Yeah. All right. I mean, give it to me. What are you angry at?
1: Uh, I guess to characterize the the misuse, I would say that um, I feel like I am at a uh, a different stage of grief in relation to this issue than Adam McKay apparently is, hmm. and there's something uniquely, uh, outraging, counterproductive, for someone at an earlier stage of grief to barge in and shout at you that you need to listen to this thing they just figured out, which is that denial is wrong and anger is good. Like, I'm working on something else over here. And if you have the loudspeaker of making a movie, you need to have a certain degree of uh, responsibility with that. You need to recognize that you're doing something when you make a movie. And I get the impression that he, according to an interview I read, he read The Uninhabitable Earth* that book that uh, a lot of people were scared by, and then thought, uh, gosh, that's pretty upsetting. I guess I'll uh, make a movie because that's what I do. And I guess I'll make kind of a satirical comedy because that's what I do. And presumably there's some reason to do that. It's not really my problem to figure out why I'm doing this or what it's accomplishing or uh, anything. And that makes me angry because I have to deal with what it's like.
0: Yeah, I hear that. I mean, on the one hand, the germ of the idea to make a movie that shines a light on this issue and brings it into more of a conversation is probably, you know, well-meaning on his part.
1: I'm not sure it's very meaning at all. That was the feeling I got. Okay. There's a lot going on in the movie. It does some things very well. It perceives a lot of things about the present predicament that are accurate and... part of my pain at watching it was, well, I, you know, I have to reckon with what he's trying to say here. But then when I stood back at the end and thought, what well, you know, what was just done to me? What was the point of this? It just all came back to, well, it's sort of some compulsive movie making in a tone that's sort of habitual. I don't really see where the good intentions were really thought through. I'm not sure who it was for or what change it was trying to affect.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's the key is who is it for? In some ways, I might be inclined to think, well, this is for me because I am sympathetic to the importance of talking about this, and I, you know, like these actors and think that this guy has made smart and funny movies in the past, so why shouldn't this be for me? Well, for me, like I said, it was just intensely unpleasant to be confronted with the most absurdly hyperbolized distillations of stupidity as though to, like, dare me to feel responsible for them. You know, I'm not responsible for them. And the movie, like, doesn't have an out for somebody to not have to sink under the weight of it. You know, like, he needed to poke some relief holes somewhere.
1: Yeah, he needed to believe in something. I feel like, uh this is real, like we need a real answer here. And it hurts my feelings to look out at the world and see people who purport to be grappling with this unprecedented problem and come up with Pat or worse than Pat kind of shrugging reflex, well, just trying to do our making the movie thing answers to that question. That's hurtful. And it was particularly hurtful. It made me feel particularly like I was going insane that much of the point of the movie is, hey, doesn't it make you feel crazy when there's this big, important thing? And then you look around and everyone is being so petty and superficial and denialist and sort of fixed on their stupid everyday concerns. And they're just on Twitter every day. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, that that does hurt. And you're doing it, movie. You are <laughs> yes. totally being that person it's like he barged in and was like ah this is super important check this out and it's the meme of the dog in the burning room saying this is fine like yeah yeah I've seen that if you're posting the meme you're being the dog dude that's not part of dealing with this sort of inconceivably gigantic spiritual problem so this just felt like it agitated me and riled me up about something and then resembled the thing that it had deliberately riled me up about And that is maddening to me.
0: Yeah, well said. Okay, so uh, we're supposed to talk about the music here.
1: Yeah, well, I think I can talk about the music because the music was really one of the sharper needles in this agitating me. How did you feel about the music?
0: I thought that Nicholas Bertel did some smart things and he did them interestingly and made some cool sounding music. He's a pro, and so the stuff he made is, you know, good professional work. But there is no way that this would be in consideration for an Oscar if it weren't a movie that the culture at large is, you know, struggling to respond to along the various dimensions that you found it difficult to deal with. Some people say, well, any attention drawn to this is good and important and therefore we can't, it's above reproach. And there's many voices saying, no, as you are, that this should be reproached for the manner in which it engages with the topic and with its audience. And uh, the relationship between the movie and its music is not an Oscar-caliber relationship. You know, Nicholas Bertel is an Oscar-caliber composer, but he wasn't asked to do that here, this is a crass satire that has very little music in it, that has only one or two moves, that doesn't really go deep in a way that music is asked to help it. I think that the Academy reflexively ticked this off on their ballots because they thought that that was their duty as part of the political discourse I cannot believe that anybody actually voted for this to be possibly the best score of the year because they intrinsically thought that what the music was doing for it was the best musical job for a movie of the year. And I think that the move of nominating this, because it is a knee-jerk way out of a difficult political discourse, is... A move that is so cartoonishly cynical and cravenly impotent that it belongs in this unwatchable movie.
1: Yes, um, I guess I agree with that. I hadn't even really thought about it because I am just trying to shore up my own sanity after watching this. Part of what is upsetting to me is to feel like what hurt me about this movie doesn't seem to have hurt people like when I went through the reviews i didn't find any of them really taking the tone that I am taking here, which is like, but this is real how dare you and so I don't know why why people would or wouldn't like this score. I just know how furious it made me feel. I stand by what we said. Nicholas Patel makes really beautiful music that has made other movies i've seen feel like places of great feeling and that is wonderful but coming with the anger that has been instilled in me by this I am pretty grossed out by this score as by this movie for seeming like an abdication of the responsibility to know that music is saying something and then figure out what that thing is and decide if it's something you want to say all his interviews it's clear that his approach is kind of to produce stuff and see how it feels, and then they put it against the movie and see if that way that it feels is useful. And that can be a very useful approach in making kind of poem movie as... uh, As Barry Jenkins does. As Barry Jenkins does. But in making a polemical movie, a rhetorical movie at least, let's say, you are a participant in the rhetoric one way or another. You can't just be a producer. Yeah, composer has really started to shade into what we usually used to call producer, like you just really are focusing on picking the instruments and the colors and the figurations and the sound quality and working on your computer to mix things a certain way. And we're going to talk about some other scores here where that really is to the fore in what the craft is, and that has value, but my annoyance that I have been feeling for years of like, yeah, but when is someone going to write some music... <laughs> And my annoyance that you've heard me express on this podcast repeatedly in the past that, boy, movies that claim to be about real world issues rub me the wrong way. This was like the Mount Everest peak of both of those things combined together. Like you cannot stand up and talk about this horrendously important and real thing and just produce some sounds while playing some standard progressions like, oh, you know, the end of the world, that probably like gives you like a sinking feeling, right? Like, you know, like going from C minor, O, oh, then like G minor, you know, one of these things will go around like this.
0: Some standard progressions, isn't pretty much all of the music in this movie built on the same string of four chords repeated ad infinitum?
1: Yes. Pretty much, it's just the same thing.
0: I mean, he must have you know, chosen to do that intentionally because a repeating chord pattern suggests inevitability, something like that, or the all too familiar grooves of cultural discourse that can't be escaped, something like that. But yeah, it's the same chords, whether it's this kooky swing band that he has. <laughs> Or quieter textures with string beds and with, you know, sciency y Beeble Boops.
1: Mm-hmm, that's right. He said he wrote music about science and knowledge. Well, did he? That's what he said, that he called it that.
0: This is an interesting process, I guess, that we should talk about, because that's what our, what our job is, right, right Andy? let talk about this process. We're doing our job here. Do-
1: let it not be said we were anything but professional <laughs> about our professional obligation or job to talk about this and I'm sure they're all loving it so yes tell me who
0: wouldn't love this yeah so his first move was to write a piece that he called the overture to logic and knowledge and this was meant to convey in his words the opposite of what is satirized in this movie Mm -hmm. the opposite of the denialism and crass pettiness So this is the piece that he wrote, the overture to logic and knowledge. I think that he gave this to McKay to play for the actors on the set, like it got played for Leonardo DiCaprio and Jennifer Lawrence in the scene when they were, uh, you know, doing the math on their whiteboard uh, about the comet. This was meant to be the good force in the world that the subjects of this movies barbs moving away from so that's kind of interesting he didn't necessarily intend for this to be in the movie he just wanted to get this out first and it wound up being played in the movie this is the cue that you hear over you know the thanksgiving dinner that they eat at the end Mm -hmm. i don't know do you think this sounds like logic and knowledge No, no, no. It's Pat. It really is.
1: It just sounds like movie stuff or it just sounds like podcast stuff. It just sounds like if it was like, you know, serial season four was about a scientist and it would have this thing that they would play between segments. It doesn't sound like thinking or feeling about the thing that is... One of the hardest things to think or feel about in human history that we are all struggling to think and feel about. This is so grotesque an abdication of yeah. the responsibility. And then, yes, it's painful for me to read the interviews and PR material where it's like, Well, he used a toy piano and a Celesta and a whatever a banjo like I really am angry, not just in this case, but all the time, about this attitude. And it'll come up again later on this episode. Of like, if we list the instruments, or at least the patches on the synthesizer that we used, that shows that we were creative. And it's actually not very creative these days because everyone has those things in the drop-down menu. It doesn't take anything to put a bunch of different stuff. And then, yes, if you have the money, you're like, let's get real instruments but you're not being an artist just because you have some toys.
0: So his next move, after he had written this piece, and said, okay, well, now I need to write music that is the opposite of this. Again, reading those, I agree, difficult to read interviews. He was talking with Adam McKay about it, and they were talking about the feeling of being engulfed in in an enormous high-stakes battle akin to, say, World War II. But this time we may lose World War II, is what he said again and again in all these interviews I read. But talking about it, World War II made him think of mid-century big band swing. He thought, all right, well, I'll try to make a big band swing number, but I'll show that it is, you know, complicated and messy by mixing in these elements that are alien to a big band swing texture, like, yeah, toy piano, and, uh, banjo, celeste. To give a sense of kind of crass gallows humor. I will say that when this main title came up, I was with it. I felt like, oh, okay, this is helping me. This is giving me a way to come to this topic with humor. I was actually pleased to hear it the first time in the main title.
1: Uh, I was shocked by it then. I thought, okay. oh my God, are we doing this? And then I spent a lot of the movie thinking. Look, I need something. I need some narrative for this. If I have some sort of angle of spin on this, I probably need that. That's what human beings need for things. And I thought, so that's what, is that the angle that I've been missing? That this is all kind of a like rolling your eye, you know, like I should be playing the Curb Your Enthusiasm theme. That's the take. And when that came up in the main title, I thought, wow, are there people who have found some ground to stand on from which that's the take, and that this is a kind of sarcastic party, that's astounding. I don't know if I believe in that. And then by the end, I was like, yeah, they did. not They just did that. They didn't have a thought. They weren't there. Yeah,
0: well, I got to where you were by the end because I agreed I don't think they had enough of a thought. I kind of was more willing to see where it was going to see what it had to say when I heard this come up. I think it's, in and of itself, it's cute, but, you know, if you listen to the longer version that's on the soundtrack album, you really do hear that it really is just the same string of four chords over and over and over again. And the big band writing is like not the most imaginative. It's like the whole horn section is going blah, bap blah, bap for every chord. Right. It gets It gets
1: old we've talked about other music and other movies whose message is in one way or another this is the same old story here comes the same old patterns yeah we're stuck in these patterns and oh you know what chord is coming next and oh you can't stop it because it's coming around again sure and that's the sense of this that's the only sense this has i think that's what he went to he knew he could do that thing yeah one of the things you do with that thing is just repeat it over and over you could do other things with it that's one of the things you could do with it that's the one he did i'm not sure it was right to go there in the first place i'm not sure that there's any applicability of the same old story to what's happening but to only do that seems offensively obviously insufficient Mm. downright evasive
0: Mm. Again, I read where he was saying that he wanted to make the big band sound like it was breaking apart at the seams and that it could barely contain all of the competing elements inside of it. And I just want to say that, well, in a somewhat recent episode, we talked about a piece of big band swing music that was intentionally written to sound overfull and internally competing mm-hmm. in a way that was disconcerting and this does not hold a candle
1: to that You're talking about Touch of Evil?
0: Yeah, I'm talking about the murder cue in Touch of Evil that I feel like is such a masterpiece for Mancini.
1: Yeah,
0: my initial blush of oh is this, is this can I relate to this after all? No, it was quickly quashed. And what was more to me disconcerting in the score then. The over-repetitive chord pattern material was the material that actually did have some different chord patterns because it was meant to be music that was intentionally Crass and too slick for its own good. The music that was meant to be coming out of the satirical presentations being given by the various characters and parties in the movie, who right. don't know what's good for them and have their priorities all wrong. Those people in the movie get to play their own music, like where there's an industrial video presentation of a thing on a couple of occasions, or a big like public pageant showcase of something. That is the music that really gave me the willies here. It was clear that he was trying to do a parody of over-slick, you know, facile production of music that was corporate and thoughtless. Uh, Boy, it really was a weird cognitive distance for me to hear somebody who I know has real composition chops trying to truncate his vision to sound like a parody of corporate thoughtless misguidedness. I mean, if you want to say, like, it did its job because it made me feel awful, then fine. But it made me feel awful, and I don't deserve to have a movie make me feel awful like that? I mean, like—
1: I would like to believe also that I don't deserve to have a movie make me feel awful, and that I did not come to this movie with some kind of bad attitude. Yeah. It's what the movie opted to do. Yeah. And— are we in a minority here? Like I looked around online to find people railing against this, but most of them are just railing against it sort of on political terms of like, well, it's a distortion of this or that issue that it's a caricature of. I don't really care. It's the big picture that was offensive to me here. I felt like we probably need to mention that it seems like Adam McKay thought he was making Dr. Strangelove here and that this was going to work because Dr. Strangelove works Hmm. and Dr. Strangelove famously very pungently ends with a sentimental song being sung while you see the end of the world
0: oh yeah I made this connection too he picks a song that has very parallel lyrics to the song at the end of Dr. Strangelove Yeah, in Dr. Strangelove, it's We'll Meet Again, don't know where, don't know when, but I know we'll meet again some sunny day. Right. And what are the lyrics here? It definitely is like a reference.
2: We will see you next time.
1: Yeah, it was clearly on his mind, and he thought that there was kind of a formula he could follow there, and it would therefore be saying something. But the thing at the end of Dr. Strangelove is supposed to be hard medicine, and it's essential to it that it is a needle drop, that it is the voice of the human race in its sentimentality trying to reckon with death. And, you know, I think that's a song for people who are going off to war. It was a sentimental song. You can't be sarcastic about real things in your own movie, in your own voice, without coming from somewhere all of the music in this movie is just is assumes the affect of snark as though that's just something you can say about anything at any time no matter what and presto you've taken a cool snarky angle on it it has to mean something and dr strangelove is hard watching if you're really watching it it has thinking in it it is actually about something from somewhere
0: yeah and instructively it has almost no music Through its body.
1: Yes, exactly. It is not full of sarcastic party music. No one is claiming that it is a blast. That is a lie.
0: Okay, Andy, thank you for uh, talking to me about this. I think it's important to... To talk through this, because it's important to talk through this.
1: Yeah, was it important to talk through it on Settling the Score podcast where we discuss the great film scores? I don't know, man. I feel a little like Adam McKay has a lot to answer for here. And as you said, so does the Academy.
0: Yeah, Academy, uh, what are you doing? You have to think about what the things are that you're claiming to give awards for, and you just didn't. You thought about other things here, and and then you made us think about the things you didn't want to think about.
1: Yeah, that's right. It's all a coping mechanism that they're trying to make us party to, which is exactly what the movie tries to make noxious. Exactly. I agree. That's noxious. Yeah. Uh, And I also want to say, before we move on... Let's move on, though. I do want to say to our listeners... Yeah. Hi, hi, listeners. You might have had a very, very, very different response to this movie, to this music. Sure. I have no problem with that. I envy you (laughs) if you had a pleasant time or enjoy this music. I do not feel that I'm up on a soapbox here trying to set anyone straight. We just set ourselves the task of articulating what happened to us and how it made us feel, uh, because hopefully that's interesting. But I'm very glad to say I speak only for myself on this.
0: Nonetheless, I think it's good we spoke about it. But I also think it'll be good to speak about something else.
1: Yes. Let's go to some other planet.
0: Some other planet and time and set of instruments. Sort of, yeah, sort of.
1: Dune was written by John Spate, Denis Villeneuve, and Eric Roth, based on the novel by Frank Herbert. It was produced by Mary Parent, Denis Villeneuve, Cale Boiter, and Joe Caracciolo Jr., and it was directed by Denis Villeneuve.
0: It's a sweeping space epic that stars Timothy Chalamet as Paul Atreides, who with his family and entourage including Rebecca Ferguson, Oscar Isaac, Josh Brolin, Jason Momoa and others must adventure onto the desert planet Arrakis.
1: Music by Hans Zimmer.
0: Okay, Andy, uh, off the bat here, I just want to start by asking you, do you have any things that you would like explained to you about the story and setting of, of Dune that uh, that maybe I can help you with? Because I, I would love to explain some Dune to you if you want me to.
1: <laughs> I feel like Dune did a fair amount of explaining Dune to me. Yeah,
0: well, it had more it could have done, but I think it did a tasteful job of explaining what it needed to. I, I'm I'm really curious what you thought of this movie.
1: I was impressed with it and enjoyed watching it and thought it was good.
0: I am pleased to hear that. (laughs) Uh, I have been a big fan of this book since I was a teenager, as is true of lots of people, as apparently was true of Hans Zimmer. Mm -hmm. So I'm really well versed in the source material. I even kind of like the woe Begone 1984 David Lynch version of this movie. I got into that when I was a kid too. But I was excited for a sci-fi director of the stature and renown of, of Denis Villeneuve trying his hand at this and really trying to honor it and be true to the book. And I thought that he really did it. He just nailed it. I thought it was exactly the vision of the book that I wanted to see. And he really put it there for me. And I just ate it up. So that's where I am.
1: Well, that's great. I, uh, I have never read this book. I know its reputation.
0: Did, did you want me to explain anything? Because that would be great.
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess if you could point out to me where the Dune is, I didn't... <laughs> I didn't they didn't specify which was the Dune of the title.
0: <laughs> There's a, in the book... No,
1: they did. I'm lying. I'm lying just to be absurd. They did. There was someone's did some voiceover where he said, my Arrakis, my Dune. Yeah. The whole planet is the Dune. I got it.
0: The mantra in the book that gets repeated in italics to denote the interior monologue of various characters all the way through is Arrakis, Dune, desert
1: planet. Yeah, just so you know, good italics. Thank you.
0: That's what italics sound like. I shall not fear. Fear is the mind killer. Fear is. The yeah, mind I knew cult. that fear okay. was
1: the mind killer. I'm, you know. I've been adjacent to many geeky things that I don't actually, I'm not fully (laughs) versed in. So I I knew what the mind killer was. While we're talking
0: about being adjacent to the geeky things and uh, inside of me having brought up the 84 David Lynch movie, I also just wanted to say that when I was a kid and saw that movie, I got a big kick out of the big main theme to that movie by Toto, the band Uh who scored that movie. That big main theme was one of my early experiences with sitting down and trying to figure something out for myself on the piano. And in this case, it kind of opened my eyes to, you know, I I can hear what the melody is doing, but what is that chord? Well, if I just try all the different triads I can think of that have that note in the melody in it, one of them is gonna turn out to be the right chord. Oh, look at that. Now I made that chord, now I understand that change. So I, that's just a fond memory I have of that music. All right, but well, let's turn our eyes to this music <laughs> and our let's turn our blue-tinted eyes to this one. Uh-huh. Did you notice about the blue? T- that's a thing they didn't
1: talk I about. I did. That. I assumed that once he got high on Spice, his eyes were going to be blue, but it wasn't quite by the end of this movie.
0: No, you, you need more exposure over a lifetime
1: to get blue eyes. But yes, it is uh-huh. from exposure to the Spice. In his vision of the future, his eyes had gone blue.
0: Oh, sure. Yeah, well,
1: that's... That's to come. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. More deep. You don't, you don't even know Muad'Dib is amazing.
1: The number of things you cannot know about this is astounding.
0: You did see Muad'Dib on screen in this movie and not just in the person of Paul. My Dune heads out there know what I'm talking about.
1: You're Dune bros. Well, as someone who had the book in the back of your head and had a, or the front of your head, it seems like, and had expectations you were hoping would be met, what should Dune sound like?
0: I imagine you're asking me this because you have some skepticism as to whether it should sound like what Hans Zimmer made it sound like.
1: No. What I'm thinking of is I had read The Lord of the Rings before those movies came out. I definitely had the experience while watching those movies of, is this what I thought the music was going to be? Because I had a pre-expectation of it. So I imagine so did you. Did you? And if you brought it to this movie, how does this movie connect to it?
0: In my own head, when I think of what music is correct for a certain thing i think i do tend to have a more melodic and harmonic conception of how music should go rather than a textural and timbral one Mm -hmm. yeah when i was a kid and was into this book and the earlier movie you know the import of that chord change in the toto theme that felt commensurate with dune to me that change That felt uh, like it had scope and uh, grandeur in it. I think as a composer, that's my instinct is to think, all right, what's the chord change that really gets this across? And I think that is different from the entry point and the motivation that uh, has driven Zimmer here because he really did take a texture-first approach to how to realize this far-off planet that nonetheless has deep roots of tradition and history bound up in it. Zimmer was motivated to do all kinds of very ambitiously experimental methods for coming up with new instrumental sounds. I read in interviews where he said, you know, of course I love the score to Star Wars, but a question that I had about it was, why should there be this very familiar, you know, European orchestra playing trumpets and violins in an outer space in the galaxy far, far away? Wouldn't there be other instruments? Wouldn't there be a whole totally different set of sounds? And... That was his motivation here, was that he wanted to come up with a totally different and new soundscape that doesn't suggest music that you're familiar with. Uh, and I... <laughs> Do you think he achieved that? Do you not? I mean, look, is all of this stuff that he comes up with like my favorite stuff to listen to? No, because I have a mindset, like I said, that does crave more traditional musical elements of melody and harmony, and this has a lot of blobby mush in it you know like we said there's a lot of blobby mush in the scores this year but yeah i do want to give him credit for the ambition and i think the achievement yes of just going full bore with all these sounds and caring for them and sculpting them and making them do the things that a film score needs to do i think so let me ask you, you said in the last segment that you don't think it's so creative when people can just call up synth sounds from their drop down menu. I was worried that this is what you were talking about. You said that you were going to have something to say about that in this episode. Is this where you were going?
1: Yeah, well, I am of two minds here, or I'm of one mind that needs to be uh, expressed in two different parts. I think this was a really good score for this movie. Okay, I think this is really well done. I okay, think good. That Zimmer is the best at doing this thing. I also then can talk about what I think of the fact that this is the thing that's done. Okay, It doesn't come from a place of groaning cynicism about this thing. This thing has a lot of value. It can be done well or poorly, and it's done well here. Okay, But I also stand back and I, you know— Yes, this is the thing I was talking about.
0: Okay, I'm glad to hear that because, yeah, I I don't have unalloyed enthusiasm and love for this as music. And I do feel a little unsure of what it means that this is what film scoring is a lot of the time these days. So I'm happy to have that be part of this conversation. But But if
1: you want to have a head-to-head fight about that exact thing, yes— reading the press release pseudo articles that were done about the wonderful stuff that uh, went into the score and that's why this score is special in which Hans Zimmer says they built instruments for him they had custom-built instruments that had never existed before yeah
0: I mean, he has a friend who is a metallurgist who like crafted actual metal objects for him to strike and interact with and mine for sound forms that he could then put into his synthesizer and I think I saw that somebody made a contrabass duduk for him oh, yeah. by, by putting by putting a regular duduk mouthpiece on the end of a big PVC pipe, which is pretty cool. Zimmer also directed the creation of some sort of electronic instrument that is based on the sampled sound of some kind of a Tibetan horn but then that sound is triggered, is controlled by the action of somebody playing a real physical cello that dictates what happens with the sample of the Tibetan horn. Crazy. He's got obviously a lot of voices used in here and the voices are coming from these very interestingly accomplished singers who have studied all kinds of world vocal traditions from Jewish chanting to Tuvan throat singing And you can hear all that in there. You can, yeah.
1: Yeah, I read the article touting each of these things. And I do feel a little cynical about the idea that this means that the musical effect is similarly unprecedented and never before imagined. We live in an era where everyone's personal computer has the capacity to synthesize incredible, never-before-heard sounds. And my ear is, at some level, jaded about the novelty of any of this stuff. I hear it and I think, yeah, some computer-processed stuff that sounds different. And it can be good or bad stuff, but the elaborateness of the process by which it was created doesn't convince me of anything. But when
0: you said in our last episode that... You have no cynicism at all for when Jerry Goldsmith tells you to hit instruments with things that they shouldn't ordinarily be hit with and blow through them in ways that they shouldn't ordinarily been blown through and have ping pong balls put into them that you shouldn't ordinarily put into instruments. And you said that that is all great stuff and it speaks to you Mm -hmm. in the sound of a movie score why is this different? I mean, because he really is innovating. He is not getting these sounds out of a drop-down menu. He is figuring out what basic elements of sound he wants to conjure with. It's an air both to the innovation that Goldsmith would come up with regularly and to the stuff that we talked about Wendy Carlos doing in terms of just synthesizing sound where there was no sound before.
1: Yeah. And I I think it was uh, last year's Oscar episode where we were talking about uh, the James Newton Howard score. I gave myself that same question. Why am I blasé about all of this inventiveness, You know, undeniable inventiveness? And uh, I think I specifically said, whereas when Jerry Goldsmith does such a thing in an orchestral score from 40 years ago, that seems meaningful to me. And the answer I came up with then was that the composing seems to reflect a different attitude toward organization of these materials what they're worth and where to put them. I think that Zimmer's enthusiasm that he expresses in those things is sincere. I think that his skill at collecting and constructing these things is real and trying to find the particular texture that's going to support the movie. I just sort of perceive him as someone whose interest is in stacking stuff up and tinkering and he seems content to collect and add and that's fun for him and the final product is so often a kind of stack of stuff that becomes homogenized because like there's seven different things you never heard going on at once the effect of which is yeah I've heard seven different things I've never heard I know what that sounds like it sounds like a computer synthesized soundscape fantasy and yes this one has to do with Dune in a wonderful way but My ear is not going, whoa, what is that, very often. It does a few times in this score. There are a few places where something is well enough highlighted that it has the value, but... My experience listening to this music is looking over some landscape in which nothing happens but, you know, the winds shift, the mirages move back and forth, and oh, what's that? I don't know what that is, but it all sounds like voices or instruments from afar processed on a computer, which is what it is and is not a new experience for me.
0: So to address the contradiction with what I said in last episode about Jerry Goldsmith's collection of kooky sounds and why they might not necessarily be the right thing to put into a given movie, I have to respect Zimmer's devotion to the cinematic experience of the movie. All of these exorbitant techniques that he employs, they really are unfailingly in the service of what the audience is feeling at any given moment and why they should be feeling that as part of the narrative of the story. He is incredibly sensitive to the beat-by-beat moments of when the movie needs what kind of push. And does a lot of it kind of have a subliminal wash of an effect? Yeah, it does. Mm-hmm. And so if you want to say, well, you're not the most impressed about a subliminal wash of music, I get it, and I'm not either, if I'm just listening to music. But I think the negotiation that he does between what is subliminal and when it jumps up into liminal uh, is so well-navigated and so thoughtful. Like Here's the hunter-seeker, the little floating needle drone thing that comes out of the wall to attack Paul. It's floating there and there's just some music floating and it waits for just the right moment to crest the surface of your attention. Okay, now you're focusing your mind in a different direction and you're in the scene with it because the music has very carefully navigated where you are and what you're thinking about. And I think he's doing that all the time. He's using, yes, this ambient, mushy stuff to anticipate things and to get you ready to feel something because the next cut is gonna show you a big thing. or he's deliberately withholding it from you because he doesn't want to give things away like these super awesome shots of the Sardaukar troopers dropping silently from these floating ropes. It was pretty cool, right?
1: Lots of great imagery in this, and music that absolutely serves the imagery that, you know, Denis Villeneuve has such a strong visual style, and this is music that gets it and is pushing it, yeah.
0: gets it. I was just so swept up in how getting it he was being that I kind of lost interest in saying to myself, yeah, but is this the greatest artistic expression of what music is? No, I, I really just... It set out to wash over me in conjunction with this stunningly realized space epic and it did and so I applaud that.
1: Yeah, I would not even start down the path of having critical thoughts about this if it were not for, one, that we do a podcast where <laughs> we set ourselves up, let's think critically about these things. So right, right. you know, I've forced a thought on myself. Two, the fact that the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences has nominated this as the best musical score and like, oh, is it the best? Well, now we have to think critically about what it is and what makes such a thing the best. And three, I will say I had a spontaneous moment in this movie, which is quite long. After about 90 minutes of soundscaping, providing a sense of amazement and transport and awe and fantasy. I don't remember exactly where we were in the plot, but you know, there's been a battle and then suddenly they're lost in the desert somewhere around there. There was an establishing shot of the next sequence and there was more just soundscape. And I spontaneously had the feeling of well, where are we and where are we going with this? Uh, I wish there were music in this movie uh, that would give me a a clue at this point. All
0: right. I mean, I must admit that I never felt that lack for knowledge of where we were going because I knew exactly where we were going, so maybe that got me off the hook for some of those feelings.
1: There's just space in my head while I'm watching a movie that's scored this way that remembers what it's like to have music during a movie in the sense that I'm not getting it. And that's not supposed to be damning, I'm just saying that there's a difference of type.
0: I know what you mean by whether or not there's quote-unquote music in this movie. Like, I mean, there's mush. There's ambient mush with, like you said, a collection of sounds you've never heard that mush together into a sound that you've heard. And fine, but it's not fair to say that there's no music in it. There actually is.
1: No, there are some moments where the score comes to the fore, and uh, some of them were very satisfying. Okay, great. So it was satisfying, yes. One of the places I thought this is, uh, this is really good was... Tell me when the uh, Doom Nuns descend in their space nun <laughs> you helicopter.
0: Know, you know the word Bennedresseret. I know because you've said it to me. But fine.
1: Yeah, in the track called Bennedresseret, we haven't even seen them yet, and there's music which is this whisper chorus of yeah. uh, rhythmically layered whispering. Women's whispering. Which is an old idea, but it's done in a new way here, and it, it conveys a lot about story and character.
0: Yeah, he said that he wanted to emphasize the strength of the women overall in this movie, and the strength of this particular quasi mystical order of women, the Benedictine in the story. And yeah, and so like all of these women's voices. <laughs>
1: Yeah, and it conveys exactly that sort of thing. You know, when you're reading a fantasy novel, it's all about these sort of zones of impression. This is one of these fantasy worlds in which there are different factions in the movie. They put up a title on screen and say, okay, now this is the home world of these people, and they have their own production design and their own costumes and their own way of speaking and their own role in the plot. And every time Zimmer had to nail down a sense of where we are, who we're with, what they represent— Yes, he had very clear, strong, sound identities for these things. The use of the bagpipes to represent the... Atreides. The, the house at the center of the story, yes, Atreides. Quite effective, I thought. Yeah. And again,
0: that came out of thinking about, like, what is an ancient instrument that could plausibly still be around in this far-off future galaxy? that uh, you know could have had its own tradition. He's taking a lot of thoughtful inspiration from the material, like a kind of musical idea that is in the source material is that when you're walking across the desert, you can't walk rhythmically because that will attract the sandworm. So you have to walk in this kind of arrhythmic dance shuffle step. And he took the concept of that and made all of these crazy drum explosions that like don't have a rhythm. I think he was inspired by like the power of doing
1: things a Yeah, I love those drums. I thought that was really great. I'm not against any of this, I really thought this was a good score that helped the movie. I okay. want to be super clear about that. I
0: want to be glad about
1: that. But I feel like that that's when he's in his zone. He and his studio. I mean, we should be clear. Almost certainly how this music was written was he made tracks, but then the actual mapping second to second to the final edit was done by various assistants. I don't know that as a specific fact about this movie, but that's how everything works when Zimmer composes. It's just how his business operates, and there's nothing wrong with that. It comes
0: up with good results. I mean, I have in my life kind of felt more jaded about that than I seem to feel nowadays when I I feel like I've come around to just acknowledging that it's effective.
1: But he and his studio, I feel like what they do is a uh, kind of highly refined art of subconscious manipulation. And I know manipulation is such a loaded word. It sounds dismissive or critical. I don't mean it in a critical way. It's just a different way of thinking about what you do with music. Like, we wouldn't say that a symphony is manipulation because its objective is to be in front of you and engage with you as a conscious listener. And the objective of a lot of this music is sort of to, you know incept you. It's trying to sneak up behind you while you're watching the movie and and just kind of caress your impression. And that's great. That's a great thing. But when it comes time to say, well, what do you think of this as music? I feel like, well, it's like comparing... Uh, oh boy. What? You, you don't want a metaphor at this point?
0: No, I can't wait for what your metaphor is be. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know, these kinds of soundtracks, they sell well. People love them because they have function away from the movie in a way that a lot of movie soundtracks couldn't because there's too much music going on. Whereas these are perfect for, yeah, I like to put it on while I'm studying or while I'm reading the Book of Dune or while I'm playing my role-playing game. Or writing. Or while I'm writing, yes, where I want to be kind of in a fantasy zone. I want to color my whole room that way. I want to change where I think I am. I want a soundscape to envelop me. And that's what they've made. Much more general-purpose transport the listening mode just is different it's some kind of deeper effect it's a more hypnotic effect and I feel like talking about this as music is kind of like talking about like a hypnotist's script as writing like yes you can write it well or not but someone saying like you're somewhere very safe you're somewhere very peaceful I'm going to count down from 10 to 1 and when I get to 1 you're going to be completely relaxed like that can be done well or poorly. And when it's done well, it has wonderful value. And I have nothing critical to say about it. But if it won an award for writing, I'd be like, wow, is that writing or is it just some slightly different thing we're doing with words? Uh,
0: first of all, I want to say that that, in fact, was done very well. And I feel very relaxed. And I'm sure all our listeners are enjoying their ASMR moment there.
1: Yeah. Well, hopefully uh, Zimmer will hire me. <laughs>
0: I think you're doing a little bit of a disservice to the actual music that he does write.
1: So there is a moment in this, uh, about half an hour in, where I and the movie kind of felt like, well, now we got to hear what the music actually goes like. And some music rises to the fore. When they're leaving Caladan. Yeah. When the House Atreides leaves their home world to go to Arrakis, where the bulk of the story is going to take place. And you see the spaceship's taking off. And it's a music moment. So there's music with actual rhythms and notes. I had the response, did you, of, oh, is this how the music goes in this movie? I'm surprised, I didn't know that there were gonna be kind of rock drums and electric guitar, or is it electric guitar or is it some manipulation of much more interesting sounds that I can no longer distinguish from an electric guitar? It's both. Okay.
0: I agree. That wasn't my favorite moment in this score. It did feel like it was walking out in a direction that I didn't (laughs) feel prepared for exactly. But, you know, that seems like an isolated example. I think the music that he actually wrote for this includes great stuff like the theme that gets sung with that super cool, growly woman's voice. You know, Duncan Idaho gets, like, militaristic brass, more melodic stuff. You no, like, towards the end when they make it across the desert and meet up with the Fremen, the fact that he has withheld, you know, musical music sounds for so much of it gives a lot of weight to when we hear big, you know, major, actual chords with brassy shimmers, and... I was just on board with the calculation of it. Yes, it's there's calculation to it that is comparable to a hypnotist, but I guess, uh, I guess I'm a chicken.
1: You're a chicken? Oh, the hypnotist made you a chicken? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I told you, John, when I clap my hands, you'll be a chicken. Not yet. <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay.
0: Uh, uh, what? Chicken?
1: Yeah, yeah right. No, don't, don't pay any attention to that. Uh, yeah, I, I don't mind the calculation. I just noted that when the movie rose to the moments where music was what was really going on and was to the fore and, you know, had a meter and a melody... It made less clear what the movie was about and what was going on. And also this was pointed out to me, that leaving Caladan theme, which is what we hear uh, again at the very end of the movie, which has a nice stirring quality to it. But it has an interesting rhythm. Right, so this is um, Once Upon a Time in the West by Ennio Morricone. So, you know, I don't really have a problem with it resembling that, but uh, the idea that we're Hearing sounds never before heard because we're on planets never before visited isn't really true. These are familiar movie feelings and sounds. On which note, I think it probably bears mentioning that the last time we mentioned the Duduk, we were talking with some concern, skepticism, wariness about uh, exoticizing characters in movies on traditional lines of exoticism to sell what it matters it's something that filmmakers should grapple with and this uh, source text as far as i can tell from part one it's not too hard to map it onto earth planet no i mean i think
0: uh, frank herbert was pretty clear about the allegory of the ad in mind
1: yeah and so the use in movies i carry with me a little queasiness for 20 years at least now about the use in movies of Sound of the call to prayer. Whose prayer? I don't know. Weird people that uh, make me feel that I'm somewhere magical and mysterious in a desert somewhere. This voice which is calling on our real-world impressions of the Islamic call to prayer and is in movies all the time to give you a feeling that there's something beautiful and frightening should be handled with conscious thought rather than what seems to be going on here, which is, oh, I don't know where that came from. It just sounded right because it's there to be thought about while you watch this movie. Where are we and what do we think of this place? I
0: I felt like it was handled with enough thought. I felt moved to give Zimmer credit for treating it from... I
1: don't think it was treated distastefully. I don't think there's anything particularly pointedly offensive about this, but this is an ongoing recurring thing in uh, okay, Hollywood Well, movies. I mean,
0: I welcome the, th- the consideration of this and, and talking about this. I felt like that there was definitely deliberation to what Zimmer did and that it was done thoughtfully and earnestly and without reflexive and or harmful
1: uh, I, I agree. I basically agree.
0: Associations. Okay, good. Uh, but yeah, yeah I, I certainly welcome the conversation about it. Hey, let's have a conversation about a, uh, a differently supernatural foreign landscape, an animated one.
1: Yes. I think we should talk about Bruno.
0: <laughs> well, we have to. Yeah. Encanto was written by Cherise Castro-Smith and Jared Bush. It was produced by Yvette Marino and Clark Spencer, and it was directed by Jared Bush and Brian Howard.
1: It's about Mirabel Madrigal, the non-magical member of the magical Madrigal family living in Colombia, with the voices of Stephanie Beatriz, Maria Cecilia Botero, John Leguizamo, and many others, and songs by Lin-Manuel Miranda, but...
0: Music by Germaine Franco.
1: All right, so this is a musical, and we got to say what we always have to say when a musical is nominated for the Academy Award for Score.
0: Which has happened one other time on our show for a non-animated Disney movie in the past. That's
1: right, for Mary Poppins Returns. As with that case, we are not here to discuss the musical because that is not what is nominated in this category, which is a weird distinction to make because in a musical, these things are intertwined.
0: Well, it's either a weirder distinction or maybe a less weird distinction, I'm not sure, because in the prior case, it was Mark Shaman for Mary Poppins Returns, and he, in fact, wrote the songs in addition to to the instrumental underscore that we were technically supposed to be confined to talking about. But we wound up talking about the songs too because they were part of the same overall compositional job. It felt pretty clear to us.
1: Yeah, the underscore was in various ways using and expanding upon and referring to the songs because that's what happens in a musical.
0: Of course it is. And they were all the material of the same composer. So it seems very natural and obvious that he would explore the themes of the song and the melodies of the songs in his underscore Right,
1: so we had to talk about the songs Because the meaning of the underscore was wrapped up in them
0: So what's different this time?
1: Yeah, what's different? This is different from most musicals
0: This is different Encanto The Disney animated musical With music by Lin-Manuel Miranda Yeah Of Hamilton fame
1: Yeah, also of Mary Poppins Returns fame, coincidentally But uh, but
0: not as a composer for that And an <laughs>
1: end of Moana fame And he's been cozy with the Disney musicals for a while now it's no surprise. It's what you expected. Lin-Manuel Miranda wrote a musical for Disney. Why shouldn't he? Why shouldn't he? He's he's uh, good at
0: it, I think. You don't think? He
1: it. is. Yeah, well, I mean, we could talk about how we feel about that. But the <laughs> point is, it's not our job to talk about how we feel about that. Yeah, that
0: is the point because... He's not
1: nominated in this category. He didn't write the underscore.
0: Yeah, it may have been a shock to casual listeners when we said, Music to Encanto by Tremaine Franco. Right. Who's that? Well... Jermaine Franco is an accomplished musician and composer who has worked on music for a number of Disney projects. I know she worked on Coco for Pixar, and has had jobs arranging and orchestrating uh, music, has, you know, sort of risen through the ranks and got her shot to write the score to this very nice animated movie.
1: Yeah, I think she rose from the ranks specifically from John Powell's studio. I think she was one of his top second-in-command types and then emerged into her own in recent years. And this is a great assignment for her.
0: Sure, and it probably should be said, I I can't imagine that it escaped the Academy's notice that Lin-Manuel Moran, Brenda insisted that the music team for this movie was entirely Latino people. So she was recruited to join that team.
1: Yeah. She is American-born, but she has Mexican ancestry. I think she's from El Paso, Texas. All right. Um... So it can be a different composer from the person who writes the songs, who writes the underscore. That's not unprecedented.
0: It's in fact precedented in a way that we've spoken about on this show before. The one and only Oscar won by Hans Zimmer was for the instrumental underscore to The Lion King, which has very memorable songs by Elton John and Tim Rice and not by Hans Zimmer. But he got to come along for the Oscar ride that year.
1: Right. It's not unprecedented but somehow it struck me as a little more odd in this case than in The Lion King. Lin Manuel Miranda's songs so closely follow familiar. Broadway beats. Nouveau Broadway, you know, uh, Hamilton Broadway. But I recognize the dramaturgy of Broadway in the way he conceives of these songs.
0: Sure. And also the classic dramaturgy of the Disney movie musical formula. You know, there is a classic want song. Oh, yeah. And there's, you know, there's comic relief and there's character exposition songs. Yeah, exactly. He's hitting all the expected beats.
1: Yeah. Alan Menken and Howard Ashman laid down a very particular distillation of what Broadway had meant up to that point that everyone knows what it means now oh a Disney musical that's going to go a certain way and The Lion King in some ways was a little outside of that and this is really right within it even though some of the musical styles are things that only Lin-Manuel Miranda would do yes it's got a all I need, want song it's got a Welcome to our world, here's all the people in it song right at the beginning. Yeah, right. Literally, those are the lyrics of it. (laughs) There's just a lot you simply got to know. So
2: welcome to the family, Madrigal. The home of the family.
1: Charmingly, I definitely want to say. Yes, there are many charming things about this score. I'm just saying, I relate to that dramaturgy expecting a certain kind of relationship to the interstitial, the underscore. And that's not here because it's a different composer who doesn't use any of the material from the songs in her score. How did that land for you?
0: Yeah, so the casually insulting, jokey mantra that I have repeated on our Oscar episodes many times is that the Academy likes to give this award to the movie that it takes the least thought to remember had music in it. And very often, it's easiest to remember that what had music in it, oh, a musical. But when you nominate this musical, you're not nominating the person who made it a musical by writing the songs, which is what makes a musical a musical. So this getting nominated is a clerical error? <laughs> I mean, what's going on here, Andy? Well, this has been uh, causing me anxiety in the build-up to this because... I want to join in the film's PR department and the academy at large in celebrating that she is the first Latina woman to be nominated in this category.
1: And I think only the fifth woman ever to be nominated in the category. Yes. Is that the number five?
0: It may be six, but yeah, and great. And I think it was a wonderful decision to give her the assignment. It pains me to feel like a grouch about this, but like, this isn't. Is this isn't an Oscar Calvary score, is it?
1: Well, I think that I can defend it somewhat. I don't know if I can defend the nomination, but the nomination process is nonsense. It
0: has nice things in it. It's nice. It's fine. But so
1: here, here's what I'll say in its defense in relation okay. to the conversations we've just had. As I was just saying, I'm under-impressed by Hans Zimmer saying, look, I gathered all of these sounds from the world and threw them into my pot to make a special blend hans's special secret sauce i on the other hand think that the skill of taking very particular sounds that you're obligated to by the cultural target of the movie and then using them in a way that neither exoticizes them nor overwhelms them is impressive and I think that Jermaine Franco has done actually a really nice thing here in taking all of these Colombian rhythms, dance rhythms instruments, sounds and building essentially an inconspicuously normal sounding Disney score out of them that doesn't hide any of this stuff it's not below the surface and it's not subsumed into the European orchestra so completely that it doesn't even count and it's just kind of souvenirs This stuff really, in a quiet, everyday way, makes up the background sound of this movie. The first time I watched the movie through, I hardly noticed it. I thought, well, it was just some Disney stuff was going on, right? And you know, when there was magic, it sounded a little like Edward Scissorhands, and when she was running around and there was action, it sounded like, you know, action. Oh, this must all have been just typical routines done professionally. And then when I went back and listened to the score, actually, all of the stuff that she lists in her press release about how she's not just using a guitar or a ukulele, she's using a tarango and a cavaquinho, and she's not just using a marimba, which is her personal instrument, she is a marimbist, she's using a marimba de chonta that she had specially made and shipped because it uses the Colombian peach palm and sounds a little different. I feel like those things have the right effect in this movie, which is that the color palette of the movie just is Colombian in a way that informs the vibe of the space of the movie. And that's exactly what the Disney Corporation is obsessed with. Whether or not it's the right thing for a corporation to do, to be like spinning the globe and putting their finger down and saying, we will now service this country. I think she's done a really, really good clear-headed job of that. Great. And as someone who is a little cynical about this kind of impulse and the way it's usually executed, I felt like there's something genuinely admirable about how well it's done here.
0: Great. I'm really happy for you to articulate that. I admit that I think that the use of those Colombian instruments was indeed done so subtly and quietly. And indeed, I think that the score got a very quiet mix in the movie. I I, I kind of felt like the music was laid at a level much lower than it usually would be in a Disney movie.
2: When me and your Theo Felix married into the family, Mm -hmm. outsiders who had no gift, Mm -hmm. never ever would. Mm -hmm. Surrounded by the exceptional. But yeah,
0: I admit that. They didn't really seem noticeable to me in a way that characterized the music. I felt myself kind of waiting for there to be a South American flair to things. And it did feel very generic European Disney score sound to me. She music that is calm and content to sort of move simply through simple chords and doesn't have too much busyness to it. I definitely felt this music as being less energetically engaged with the timeline of the movie than most Disney movies, than Mark Shaman's score for Mary Poppins Returns was. You know, where there's just a constant whoosh and sparkle, and the music is leaping up to catch the movie as it makes all of its magical jumps and twirls, and the music is nipping along and saying, me too, and yes, here is the level of action, here is the level of magic and froth and delight. That's not what's happening here. The music is holding back, is not making a lot of moves. It doesn't have a lot of moving parts. Yes, and it feels calm. It feels self-assured. It feels attractive. You know, if you listen carefully, it has interesting Colombian instruments, I suppose. But a lot of the just simple harmonic moves that she uses to treat the various... Dramatic moments felt kind of pat and cookie cutter. Like she goes to this resolution at the end of a scene very frequently. She'll just play a flat six, five, and then we sit on the five chord, and then that's the end. <laughs> that always felt like a kind of short sighted, you know, just kind of easy move.
1: Are you saying that you thought the movie would have benefited from? higher drama in the underscore because I think that part of the pleasure I took in this movie over some other Disney's or Disney-likes in the last decade was that it did prioritize kind of a cozy sense of family feeling. That was kind of what the movie was about.
0: Yeah, there were moments when I did think that, oh yeah, that these Lin-Manuel Miranda songs are really dense and there's so much activity in them and that maybe really is the right thing for the movie to just be playing it cool with the score. And there were moments when I felt that because I was looking to feel that way, because I wanted to feel that way, because I <laughs> because I really enjoyed the movie. You did.
1: You really enjoyed the movie. Did you not? Yeah, I just wasn't sure because the skepticism you're expressing about the nomination yeah, and have about said. the score, it's not clear to me what you thought of the movie. You liked it.
0: I really did enjoy the movie, but I still couldn't help noting these moments where I just didn't feel like the music was meeting what we were seeing— you know, there are many moments where I felt like, oh, this is a big dramatic moment there's something that has motion and emotional import here, and a change has occurred, or I need to have my attention focused on this action, or this change in emotion, when she would really just kind of lean on a single cord and just let it sit and fill the space like here is Mirabelle opening the door to Bruno's room to discover some sort of magical sand fountain that she has to climb through and there's drama here there's a reveal it's a moment and the music like gets to this chord and it just stays on that chord she moves she goes she does things and we're still on this chord
2: you can't help in here
0: Here's where she overhears her grandmother having a private moment in her window, and she's standing outside overhearing. If our family knew how vulnerable we truly are. Important emotional moment. And again, the chords are just holding their ground, just stepping along steadily. We cannot
1: lose our home
0: again. Okay, it's fine. It's fine.
1: See, that's an interesting moment to highlight. In one of the interviews with Jermaine Franco that I watched, she mentioned that moment. She said she originally scored that with the grandmother's emotion in the music. Okay. And the directors came and told her, no, this needs to be from Mirabelle's point of view because that's where we are. And she went back and wrote it. Good note. That was going to be my defense of the things you're mentioning. I feel like the movie is about family dynamics, right? I mean, it's, you could argue about what this movie is about. It's, subtle what this movie is about but that's about right right it's about it. certainly in there yeah and so all of these adventures she goes on with magic and jumping across a chasm and having a magic vision that swirls around them These are all slightly murky metaphors for interpersonal dynamics in a cozy, loving family. And so it seemed to me, in retrospect, it seemed to me that it was right that this score plays all of these things so mildly and so sort of approachably simply.
0: That's very interesting because it's kind of the other side of the coin of what I was going to say about why I wanted the music to be doing more. But I really am glad to, he- to hear that that's how it struck you.
1: I want to reiterate my first viewing when I thought, well, I'm going to talk about the score. What do I think of the score? I really thought my critique was going to be the same one I had for uh, Black Panther, where I said, well, it's all well and good that he borrowed this stuff from Africa. But you notice that when anything happens, it's just European orchestra time. And indeed, in this score, when the mixers decide to turn the score up and bring it to the fore, it's because it's mostly strings and brass and not Colombian instruments, not Colombian motives. Like being amazed and running and jumping and falling and having a yeah. magic vision aren't Colombian things, they're just Night on Bald Mountain or whatever she's making it sound like. <laughs> But then when I went back, I thought, oh, but what about how the whole movie felt to me? Where was that coming from? It was coming from this music I wasn't even paying attention to. Really backgroundy background music, and that has been done with care that I think matters. So that's my sort of second layer response to this.
0: Okay, great. So yes, the various magical things that happen in this movie, I agree, are very interesting metaphors for complicated family and societal dynamics And I hope I'm not getting it wrong when I say that must have been intentionally influenced by the Latin American literary tradition of magical realism.
1: Oh, yeah. I think they used those words in talking about what their intentions were.
0: Yeah. In which things that are difficult to think about, complicated, but ordinary and mundane are rendered with a magical heightening. And I really kind of felt that here. I got that. I thought that what was available to this movie as a really cool way to make the whole idea of a Disney musical be magical realism was that, you know how... All of the numbers in this movie, they kind of break away into music videos, Mm -hmm. right? Whatever they're singing about, the setting where they are drops away and all kinds of fun, illustrative flourishes get drawn in around them to demonstrate what they're talking
1: about.
0: They kind of go off into an alternate music song reality and then they come back to where they're standing at the end of the song. You know, I feel like this is a thing to do in animated movie musicals that, you know, is a descendant of the genie in Aladdin because they had to come up with magical illustrations to match the Robin Williams energy. But I think that that kind of gets passed down as just how it's done nowadays. You get to see all of the things that they're singing about illustrated literally as they go by.
1: Yeah, or it just goes back to, you know, Pink Elephants on Parade where the song is an excuse for surrealism and that's a blast for animation, so let's just do it. Yeah,
0: all of that. But I really felt like there was a connection between whatever magical force it is that is rising up and staging these music videos about these songs and throwing up all of these magical props for them as they're singing, that it would have been so great to link that magical force with the magical force that the plot of the movie is about, that The force that makes these things into songs for us to watch, that make them into big song and dance numbers, is the same force that heightens the ordinary reality of family and society in Latin America— And heightens it into this musical expression of a magical house with magic-powered people who get special powers and special doors and things. And the whole world of what the magic really means, I thought it would have been so great to link that with why we get to see songs in a musical.
1: Hmm. That's interesting. I mean, it's probably related to my feeling that we've already expressed here, that it is strange to be watching a musical, especially a very Broadway and very, yeah, complicated metaphor musical, where between songs you don't get any help in mapping your path through this world of songs. You just get to go back home, and oh, now we're we're back home again.
0: And back home, I'm sorry, it really did often sound very generic to me. It sounded like it was kind of flattened and sort of made as simple as it could be. I noticed that there are a lot of orchestrators credited in the credits like much more than usual. I don't know what that means exactly, but...
1: I don't know. I wasn't inclined to be suspicious about that because what I read about Franco is that when she was paying her dues, she was an orchestrator. So I don't think it's. I that know. that's a thing that she had to hand off. No, I'm
0: sorry. I don't think she needed to hand it off. But I just believe that she was surrounded by a Disney machine that turned out a product that was kind of stripped of being special and interesting and sort of least common denominator at the end of it.
1: Yeah, well that's a, you know, the aesthetics of these Disney extravaganzas is always like, are you doing a service to Columbia by running them through your meat grinder or is this you know, homogenizing everything to the point of (sighs) meaninglessness? Yeah, but they just could have added more Columbia in there
0: to me like this just seemed under seasoned as it was grinding to me. I
1: felt similarly watching it and then I thought, but wait, that movie uh, I could tell you that it had its particular flavor. I felt like being in that house with those people in that setting had a special Encanto feeling and what was that feeling? Oh, I think that feeling was the product. Alright, well Also, we should probably, before we move on from this actually name and play the main piece of material that she actually writes She has a couple of little other motifs, but really she has one big theme, the Encanto theme that you hear throughout the underscore
0: Right on the main title
1: And then every time they're sort of uh, checking in with the main emotional thrust of the movie, yeah. we hear this theme. And with the magic, you know, with the gift. That's right, the candle, the gift, the history, the family. It's about right, don't you think it's about right? I
0: do think it's about right, and I do think that this is a good product. I'm happy Disney made this movie the way they did, and I'm happy I saw it, and it's a—it's good. But does it deserve an Oscar?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I don't know what deserves an Oscar at this point.
0: Again, I just felt confronted, like slapped in the face by the Academy saying...
1: We don't pay attention. We just... We
0: don't pay attention. This is a musical. I just feel like the Academy voters saw this on the ballot and thought... You know, oh, Lin-Manuel Miranda musical, sure, I love Hamilton, that must be great. Oh, and Lin-Manuel Miranda is a Latina woman now, even better. (laughs) They nominated Germaine Franco and not Lin-Manuel Miranda for score. I mean, you really, you could make an argument that they should share the nomination because so much of the important musical moments in the movie are Miranda's. And that should count for what the score counts for in a certain
1: uh, and, and I saw her saying in an interview that she took great care and, and worked with Lin-Manuel to make sure that the transitions in and out of song functioned. And I think they do all function. It's just strange that they function in a way that completely withholds any of the material from the song, Yeah, doesn't comment on it later, doesn't help us understand what it meant in relation to anything else. That does feel lacking. And I don't know who to blame for that. That's some kind of top-level decision. I don't think it's just a personal choice.
0: Yeah. So if this were a shared nomination, if both of their names were on this nomination for score, I would have have a very different feeling about it because then we would be talking about what these songs are like and the effect of Miranda's composition and Miranda's lyrics which I still maintain are the real genius level art being done here you don't like it? I
1: like him too wordy for you it's it's very tell don't show I feel like when manuel Miranda was like I don't care about show don't tell I'm just gonna tell you everything I want to tell you I'm going to tell you as fast as I have to. It's cool yeah, to tell people things, a lot of things, and fast.
0: Yeah, but if you can do it and rhyme deliverous with carnivorous as you're doing it, then I am listening.
1: I warmed to it on returning to it later to check back in. But the first time, I definitely did feel confronted as I, as just Disney often confronts you with. Here is the myth. We're going to tell you the story. And now here's the song that tells you the story again. And now here's the song that tells you information. So, Andy,
0: Andy, this is all the conversation that we could have had if that was how the nomination read. Yes,
1: totally irrelevant conversation that we're not having. But
0: exactly. We don't get to have that because they specifically nominated not the songs. They nominated a musical because it's a musical, but said don't think about the songs. And then their own members, I promise you, did not not think about the songs, when they take this on the ballot. I bear no ill will towards this. I enjoyed it. I applaud Franco getting this job. I just resent being made to think about this as something it's not.
1: What you're saying is we don't talk about the songs. No, no, no. No. No, 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 John. Why? Why is that the number one hit? It's insane. How did not the main song, not the heroine's song, the ensemble song, very specifically about the character, the spooky song from the middle of a musical? How did that get to be a charting hit? It's crazy. Yeah, we don't talk about that. We don't talk about it.
0: First rule of Encanto: Don't talk about Bruno. Okay. Second rule of Encanto is: What's up next?
1: Uh, more Spanish-titled movies.
0: Oh, oh, Spanish title, you say. I think it's now time for a segment that we've had on our Oscar episodes in the past, but that has never been properly delineated as a segment. But now, I think we should make a special occasion for alphabetization time.
1: I agree. Alphabet corner. Does it have a theme? What what music? Yeah,
0: I was imagining that we would play the like fake corporate branding commercial music from "Don't Look Up" for this. Ugh, <laughs> Fine. <laughs> alphabetization cor- corner. The title of this movie is Madres Mm Paralelas, which literally translates to Parallel Mothers. By which should we alphabetize it? Luckily, it doesn't matter, because both the M title and the P title fall between Encanto and the last title in our alphabetical list. And that's what we've got this time on Alphabetization Corner. See you next year! Okay. Also, I said the title of that movie great. You did. It was beautiful. Thank you. I I flapped my tongue like anything.
1: Parallel Mothers was produced by Pedro Almodovar, Agustin Almodovar, and Esther Garcia, and it was written and directed by Pedro Almodovar.
0: It stars Penelope Cruz and Melena Smith as two single mothers who meet in the hospital while in labor and whose lives become intertwined in a variety of dramatic ways.
1: Music by Alberto Iglesias.
0: All right, Andy, I've been looking forward to talking to you about this movie and its score because... I feel like I need some help thinking about it.
1: Oh, I have been not looking forward to talking about this score because I feel like I need some help thinking about it. Oh,
0: no. (laughs) What are we going to do now?
1: It's weird, right? It's a weird movie and a weird score in the movie, and now we have to puzzle that out on the air, and that's what we're nervous about, right?
0: That's right. I mean, let me see if I can lay out my position here. I liked this movie a lot. I was into it. What do you think?
1: Uh, It sounds like you liked it more than me that you're comfortable saying that. I didn't dislike it, but I was confused at the beginning and then in the middle thought, okay, I think I see what was going on here and then got to the end and thought, well, I don't know if that added up enough for me to say I really got anything about it. And the longer I've sat with it to try and puzzle it, the less I feel I have a grasp on it.
0: Well, I agree that the ending was puzzling and didn't feel like it wrapped up the same movie that the rest of the movie had been but through most of the body of the movie, I felt invested in it. second opinion that I feel like I can say is that I like this music. I think that this is very interesting composition that I wouldn't mind spending more time just listening to on its own.
1: I think we're together in that, yeah.
0: Okay, good. So given that I like this movie and that I like this music, seems like, by the transitive property, I liked this score, doesn't it? Well, I'm just not sure exactly how transitive this property is, Mm -hmm. because it just had a peculiar relationship, this music, to its movie, didn't it? It felt to me like the music was always, or not always, but to some degree or another, the music was off doing its own thing. It uh, was interestingly and skillfully exploring moods and thoughts and textures in the music. I just wasn't always convinced that it was exploring the same thoughts and moves that the movie was exploring while that music was playing. I guess ultimately that made for an effective experience for me because altogether I found it rewarding, but I didn't always know what to make of what music was playing with what scene.
1: Yeah, I shared the reaction, and I'm glad you found it rewarding. I knew I was confused. I was never sure if my confusion was an artistic effect or just my problem to try to come to terms with this movie. And I'm still not sure, but I have the creeping suspicion that the movie makers would shrug if asked.
0: (laughs) I mean, the kind of putting your head down and just boldly going forward with an artistically stylish head of steam and... Just kind of doing that feels European to me, you know? (laughs) Oh
1: yeah, this is a European movie. There's no denying. Even if they had changed the language to English, I would still be aware that this was in the European arthouse tradition and not on a standard Hollywood mold. And that's great. In many ways, that's a wonderful and engaging and beautiful thing.
0: Yeah, and I am glad that this got a nomination because I think that this is interesting film music of the kind that you know you have bemoaned a lack of in recent years. I think that this is music that is worth talking about.
1: Yeah, it's composed music yes. by someone who has taken on the responsibility of being a composer in the most <laughs> old-fashioned sense. I think and so. That is always something I get excited about and I did get excited listening to the movie. My confusion was interesting for me to get through. But it just doesn't leave me at the end being able to say something about the experience as a whole. Just going in order. At the beginning of the movie, we see we see Penelope Cruz and the guy who is not her real-life husband, Javier Bardem, but is someone <laughs> that if you took Javier Bardem and clicked the thinner button like twice. <laughs> and they are flirting with each other about him digging up her grandfather's grave. And then they sleep together. That's the way it always goes. There is... Hitchcock-style music, right? Wouldn't you say that that's a point of reference here?
0: I think that there is Hitchcock-style music for a couple having a tryst in a hotel room with a sheet blowing in the window music, right? This feels like it's right out of the beginning of Psycho. Yeah, it feels like an
1: allusion to Psycho. Yeah. But we already don't know what to do with that. I didn't, anyway. What does it mean about them, the movie, the world in which the movie takes place... Is the fact that the movie-making style, the filming style, the acting style doesn't resemble Hitchcock or Psycho in any recognizable way supposed to be a meaningful tension that I'm exploring, or is it just something that they like had some chats about while they were making it and decided to throw in there? I already don't know, and it just gets more complicated from there. Were you doing better at that point in the movie than I was?
0: <laughs> I, yeah, I guess so. In the beginning of the movie, the music is very sparing and picks its spots carefully. And that was one of the spots, so I was like holding that as a dot in my head and waiting to connect it with something. I think it goes back to a psycho-sounding sound. I think there are a lot of instantaneous, momentary sounds in the score that sound a lot like Herman. But I don't think that they fall against the movie the way that Herman would lay them, right?
1: I don't think the movie allows it. The movie is not offering up a Hitchcockian world, pacing, performance style. Nothing about what's going on on screen feels like it's there to receive this. So it yeah, feels that's true. referential or pointedly rubbing against it or something. I don't know.
0: It seems to come easily to him to come up with textures that sound like Bernard Herrmann, but I think Herrmann would feel much more bound by the texture that he had set up and by the rules of how it then interacts with the scene that he's putting it against. And Iglesias here, I think, feels unmistakably unbound. Like, here's this moment much later in the movie when the big secret is being revealed. I wrote down, oh, this sounds like something out of Psycho. And then it goes along and oh then now it doesn't. Now it doesn't sound like psycho anymore. Now it's sort of stepping along with a more stately tread and less of that creepy dissonance. And it just felt very comfortable with jumping back and forth constantly about how much dissonant and modernist kind of sounds it had versus how much classical or sort of pop classical sounds it had. Mm -hmm. In the middle of scenes, it jumps back and forth between being an oozy, blobby dissonance. Mm -hmm. to being very regimented and regular. And I guess that's interesting. I liked all of those moves. I liked hearing the music when it did this, and I liked hearing the music when it did that.
1: This will be validating for you if you didn't see this interview that I saw, to hear how much he confirms what you just said. Oh, I cannot wait. You love this. Yeah. I saw him saying in an interview that he considered this score to have three essential elements in it. One is the vital force, the idea that it's about birth and that you hear it during the birth. You also hear it during the main title. Sure. which, Which
0: I like. This is great material
1: this thing with the tambourine. Yep,
0: tambourine is the first sound you hear. Which
1: I saw in some coverage said that in his mind that's associated with women because in Spanish, traditional performance a woman usually plays the tambourine okay. Okay. Uh, um, This piece also felt like possibly an allusion to Psycho in that we don't know what this energy represents at the beginning of the movie but it gets us slightly tensed for something slightly tense. He said the second element was the suspense element that he said, yes, was meant to be somewhat more complex and to remind us of classic American movies. And then the third element was to be the slower and more, I think he said, hypnotic kind of music. mournful aspect of the frame plot which is about the victims of the spanish civil war how it relates to the main plot is uh is strange and you know that's sort of for the you to solve but anyway he said He mixed all those things together and was going for something that captured the mix between how orderly and crazy the movie is. Mm. And you were just talking about that.
0: Yeah, I didn't read that interview and boy, oh boy.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's what you just said. So... In hearing him saying those things, and indeed hearing all of those things going on in the score, yes, that's what's exciting to me about movie music. It represents thinking, contribution, a real substance contribution from the world of music to the movie. And he also said a thing in that, that this music is not associated with characters. It is a character. It is a voice. He thinks of it as kind of the storyteller voice in the movie. Yes, that also came across to me, and I also admire that. I just then say, well, what, what was this movie about? What was the point of any of this? What did it add up to? And maybe it's okay if the answer is it adds up to whatever it adds up to. Did you find it stimulating? But I, I do still feel like I have unfinished business with this movie because uh, it didn't. Like, do you feel like you have answers to what this movie was
0: about? I felt like the ending was a real left turn that I didn't follow, because it really seems like after all of this interpersonal, you know, high drama, inescapably soap opera kind of mechanics of who is whose baby and what are people going to do about it.
1: Yeah. Filmed very intimately, very uh, yeah. actor-centered, you know, it's Penelope Cruz who gets to do acting on screen and be a movie star. And I think she does great. She does great. And the newcomer that they found for this does wonderful opposite her.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, certainly there's a lot to admire here. Yeah, but then at the end, I felt like I was being asked to understand this, you know, personal drama, family, motherhood issue plot as an allegory for something about, yeah, the Spanish Civil War. And I I did not understand that. I'm sorry.
1: It's something about how you can't bury an inconvenient secret, even if it means emotional disruption to face it. Something like that, and there was an element of that in the soap opera story, and that applies to the national reckoning that he's trying to bring in on the political front, but I felt like the music kept saying, this might look like it's soapy interpersonal stuff, but trust me, it's much more complicated and intellectually esoteric than that.
0: The music is definitely getting across complexity and intellectual esoter- esotericism. Is that a word? Yeah, I think it is. Oh, I saw the word esoteric show up in a crossword puzzle recently, and I did not believe that that was a word, so I wasn't going to say it.
1: Oh, yeah, I, I did that same crossword puzzle took me a while to fill that one in.
0: Yeah, this is not a word.
1: The movie was strange enough and Elmo Dovar is sort of confident and esteemed enough at this point in his career that it's not easy for me to say, eh, it just didn't add up. So I'm left instead feeling like it looked to me like a movie that had been made in one sort of spirit, but with some other ideas in the back of the head. And then those ideas weren't on screen. And then when it came time to compose... Now all of these ideas and all of this thinking that hadn't really been filmed was being drizzled all over it, and so that you, the viewer, were never free to just watch the movie, but didn't feel guided to having any particular more subtle experience than that i felt yeah. just denied a simple experience i was successfully denied a simple experience
0: <laughs> that's a good way of putting it i didn't feel guided by this music i felt like i had to work to catch up to this music because this music was ahead of me you know this music knew something about what was going on that the movie wasn't telling me Yeah. And ultimately, I think that wound up having a positive and productive effect on my experience of the movie because the confidence of the filmmaking otherwise left me receptive to the music saying, yes, there's something very complex at work here. But like I said, I was never totally convinced that any given cue, you know, with a few exceptions, but I was never totally convinced that the music for a given scene belonged necessarily in that given scene rather than it being kind of just as good if you swapped the cues around.
1: Yeah, that's right.
0: And, you know, there's a screenwriting truism that if you can swap the lines that the different characters are saying and switch (laughs) them around, then you haven't written good characters. I kind of felt like you could swap the cues in the scenes for this movie fairly freely. It's not exactly the same. You know, you can't draw exactly the same conclusion about that oversimplified screenwriting truism. But, you know, you get what I'm saying, right? That it felt like there was something uh, just kind of not on the same page.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's what I meant by art house is that it's a movie making style that's not as interested in constructing a very particular sequence of experiences for you. It's more about kind of putting you in company with a range of things and the exact alignments and the exact ordering is not... Yeah, there is more interchangeability as long as all those things are in play. I do think that I'm probably... my reaction to this is narrowed in an unhelpful way by the fact that we're talking about it in the context of an oscar nomination about whether it's the best i
0: mean hey i hear that is it
1: stimulating is it interesting does it yes. does it remind me of my affection for movies plus music absolutely it's that yeah so having to say whether it's good or bad is sort of beside the point of what i like <laughs> i enjoy that there's music talking in this movie really talking to me yeah and in this voice iglesias is an interesting composer i like that he likes piano so much i like that he yep. likes unusual voicings is willing to play this sequence of chords What does that mean? Where does it come from? I don't know. How does it relate to the movie? I don't know. That's interesting to me. And that it's all, it's a, pretty much all in a chamber sphere. There are a couple places where he uses a slightly larger group, but a lot of this is just a string quintet, piano, harp, percussion, clarinet. And the harmonic writing is obviously intelligent and cared for and informed by knowledge of 20th century music. It also sort of wanders out of the playbook sometimes. Yeah, It goes off the path in its own way. I think all of that is great, and I guess I think it's great that they nominated this because they nominated such a thing.
0: That's exactly how I felt.
1: And then I also don't know what to make of it, yeah.
0: Okay, it sounds like we're on precisely the same page after all.
1: Very good. Parallel Mothers (laughs) Week.
0: I mean, yeah, I kind of forgot that I wanted to say that this music felt like it was operating parallel to this movie.
2: Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: You know, that it was on a different track to the side And boy, there's interesting stuff going on in that track And also good stuff on the main track And I all right, I'll look over here and I'll look over there And I, they didn't uh, coalesce into stereo vision for me But I, I was ultimately glad that they were both there mm-hmm. Okay, sounds good though I think we're ready to move on
1: I feel prepared, yeah
0: Okay, well, we're moving on to our last score I think this one's going to be fun to talk about too
1: Power of the Dog was written by Jane Campion, based on the novel by Thomas Savage. It was produced by Emile Sherman, Ian Canning, Roger Frappier, Jane Campion, and Tanya Sagachian, and it was directed by Jane Campion.
0: It stars Benedict Cumberbatch as an enigmatically hostile cattle rancher, Jesse Plemons as his meeker brother, Kirsten Dunst and Cody Smith McPhee as a mother and son who must reckon with that hostility, and with the very secrets that they all may be hiding in this meditative Western psychological drama.
1: Music by Johnny Greenwood.
0: So we talked about a Johnny Greenwood score on our very first Oscar episode, Phantom Thread, and we were both really favorably taken with that. We thought that it was painterly, impressionistic cloud that really opened the emotional space of the movie out in very productive and entrancing ways. I'm very curious to hear if you felt the same way about this score.
1: Thank you for remembering what we said a few years ago, because I no longer remember what we said about that. I just remember liking it. And I like this too.
0: Good. I also like this too. I think, again, he did the same thing. I think this is so evocative and helpful to the, you know, intertwined with the very complicated but transfixing effect of this movie.
1: Yeah, it created it, I feel like, in large part. I felt like this is a movie by Jane Campion and Johnny Greenwood's music. It's like it has a huge hand in the effect and meaning of the movie, at least in my viewing.
0: Yeah, I agree. This music feels like it has a real insight into these characters and the dynamics between these characters. So before we dive all the way into that, I think it's important to just touch on Greenwood's process here. Am I correct that he doesn't really write his music to picture usually in the way that a more traditional film composer would?
1: That's right. He composes, I think, sometimes having seen the imagery, but yes not trying to synchronize I don't know if that's an absolute rule that he's never done that but he mostly doesn't do that it sounds like he has discussions with the director about the meaning of the movie and certainly that thinks on it and experiments and comes up with musical responses to it music that he thinks might serve in the movie that's being built but yeah it's not about sequences and timings and particular moments that they're trying to create with musical effects
0: yeah and I read about how he had very involved Conversations and back and forths with Jane Campion, showing her textures that he was experimenting with and uh, musical ideas and, you know, working them out. Not all of them made it through. He came up with a lot and they would riff on them together. But the way that the music appears in the final assemblage of the movie that we saw, the spotting of the music is not necessarily exactly something that Greenwood intended, which is great and which is, you know, a super interesting way to do it. I just want to make sure that we're also acknowledging the music editing that got done here as sort of a contribution to the effect of this score, because I thought it was wonderfully spotted.
1: Yes, absolutely. When you work this way, this sort of newer or at least artier way— more of the responsibility for the scene by scene effects of the music is in the hands of the director and the editor and the music editor and yeah those effects are wonderful and strange and Mm -hmm. complex and you know not easy to summarize in this movie and it's all been done with great care and taste and attention
0: okay so that's understood so (laughs) where to start with this score
1: well already i'll say you said a minute ago that the score kind of maps out the relationships between the characters Part of what was wonderful about this score for me was that I couldn't say what the music was specifically attaching to in the story. Was it the relationship between the characters? Was it characters? Was it specific moods? Was it specific larger concepts that are in play? It remained mysterious and suggestive much in the way we were saying that the Iglesias score in the previous discussion was attempting to add that kind of complicating additional layer to the movie but in that movie the magic connection you know below the surface some kind of subconscious sense never quite gelled for me and in this one Mm -hmm. moment for moment i felt like i couldn't say exactly what this music is telling me about the undercurrents of what's on screen here but it always felt like it was a kind of like second camera through which we were looking at everything
0: yeah yeah totally agreed
1: So I'm not sure I could say what the score means or does in any specific way, but it clearly (laughs) arose from really artistically full engagement with what this movie was going to be about.
0: No doubt. And uh, sure, there's plenty of ambiguity, and I welcome alternate interpretations of things, but I I kind of felt like at the end of the day, there were some associations that were clear to me. It seemed pretty clear to me that Kirsten Dunst's character's son in the movie, Peter, Mm -hmm was associated with these airy echoing french horns these weird hunting calls maybe these leaping intervals going up and down
1: yeah but up a weird seventh in a very echoey space and it seems like something much bigger than a character At least that's how it reads to me.
0: I agree. It goes beyond the character. Yes, I shouldn't try to make too much of a claim of pigeonholing the musical material into specific character boxes, because I fully take that it takes the ethos of these characters and lets them reverberate across the landscape Mm -hmm. of everything. But... You know, you hear these horns, which were indeed recorded in an enormous cathedral to get that immense echoing sound, you know, where the echo is almost another voice in the polyphony.
1: Right, right. I saw Greenwood saying that, yeah.
0: I feel like you do hear these again and again when Peter is off on his own. You hear it when he goes and uh, approaches the diseased cow carcass that he does stuff with.
1: When he goes to his father's grave toward the beginning of the movie, I think is the first time they put that in. Yeah, exactly.
0: So whatever Peter's outlook is, how it relates to his environment seems bound up in these horns to me
1: but don't we also hear that at times when he's not on screen
0: yeah well see then you can make inferences then you can make uh, it, once you make these tentative associations that maybe i am want to do more than greenwood really intended me to then you can make interpretations of oh well now we're hearing this because that's the governing thought that presides over this scene even if that character is not on the screen
1: oh i'm not saying that greenwood didn't intend for you to in fact i think he arrived at these things by indeed trying to come up with musical counterparts to various elements of the characters characters themes in the plot and in the setting and all of that but The way it has been edited into the movie and the amount of space he lets between himself and the specifics of the movie, you know, even if the musical idea was born out of thinking about, say, the player piano, she plays the piano, so now there's a piano and it makes sense and it fits. But then as that piano tinkles its way through one scene after another, its associations sort of dissipate and become atmospheric. I think it's just the effect rather than the intention that I'm talking about.
0: Yeah, I can't disagree with that. Still, though, here is a a moment where I feel like, you know, at least three of these timbral associations kind of intersect in the movie, in a way that lines up with the way that the characters are intersecting in the movie.
1: So you're saying the horns here are Peter, the piano is Rose, what's the third one?
0: Yeah, and this plucked sound that, you know, initially kind of strikes your ear is, oh, that's some guitar plucking. But no, it's actually a cello,
1: right? Yeah, I saw Greenwood saying that, of course, Benedict Cumberbatch's character plays a banjo in his lonesomeness and also in his hostility toward the other characters. That's a big character instrument for him, so John Greenwood thought, well, I'll, I'll put a banjo in the score, and then he found, no, he couldn't make pretty and evocative enough sounds with a real banjo, so he instead tried transferring the finger-picking technique of the banjo to the cello, which he had a cello at home and was able to, in his you know home studio, fool around with... Playing a cello like a banjo, and that's what these sounds are.
0: Yeah, amazing. This is the first thing that you hear in the movie, and I think again and again, this texture is associated with Benedict Cumberbatch's character Phil and the ranchers.
1: And the life of the rancher and yes. whatever the big you know, masculinity, the American sure. West, whatever this movie is about, which is left open to interpretation in a productive way. I thought as soon as the movie started and we hear this music, we're just seeing landscapes and people silently moving through their day. The cattle. And the cattle. And there's this rhythm rolling forward in this plucking. And I felt like already this sense of a groove that he's creating, that kind of music has this like natural sense of necessity to it. Like a good mm. popular song feels like it made people write it and play it it is not Uh someone imposing their interpretation on things it has a pre-existing impulse to it And in this movie, so the rhythm comes first, and then the chords and the images are sort of negotiating the landscape that this rhythm is laying out, and immediately we know, before anyone has spoken, that this would be a movie about people caught in the grips of some forces, that the machine of tragedy is going to be at work here. There's some big picture, and it's accomplished so simply and so genuinely musically I was impressed like right at the outset that so much depth can be brought across so simply.
0: Yeah, well said. You're totally right that he is thinking about what a groove means, thinking about what a steady rhythm means because one of the first things that you hear and this is another one of these musical ingredients that I feel get tentatively related to either, you know, people or ideas in the movie is this incredible out-of-tune player piano thing that he sets up. Again, it's sort of like that horn call. This is rocking back and forth between a big open interval. But in this case, so there's a few weird things. This is an actual player piano that is rigged up in a way that he can control it with a computer but it is a real you know, physical mechanism of a player piano. Mm-hmm.
1: He said that he wrote some software so that the computer would interpret something that was the equivalent of a punch roll. Yes, yeah, somehow his input to him was like inputting into a real physical player piano. And
0: it was performed by...
1: By a physical piano, yeah, a real piano.
0: By a physical player piano, but similar to the one that is seen in the movie and that there are some moments around on screen. But so in this piece... There's a high note and a low note, and they're going back and forth, and they're out of phase with each other. The low note kind of moves in relation, and it's in the middle of the gap between the high notes, and then it gets closer to the other side of the gap. I mean, it's like, you know, sitting at a stoplight and looking at different cars' turn signals kind of an effect, where, oh, the time relationship is moving, and... Oh, this is, again, so simple and so effective for for something, for being out of step with a prevailing force, for being unmoored. And another interesting thing he's doing with it is that he has a way of detuning it, like he can adjust how out of tune it sounds, I think with another mechanical device where he's actually like moving the strings around. So this gets, I think, associated both with Rose. Kirsten Dunst's character, and with her relationship with her son, Peter. I think we first hear it when Peter is making paper flowers, and what's he making the paper flowers out of, he's cutting up sheet music. <laughs> so it's like this music is already about taking music apart.
1: Yeah, the number of things that feed into that sound, I mean, in the actual setting in Montana in 1925, there are these pianos. The pianos are somewhat out of tune because they're out in the countryside. Yes, there's a player piano that has that particular tinny quality. So there's a grounded place and time reason to be hearing this sound. There's also the sense of, you know, what one plays on a piano is some kind of salon music or or romantic music that there's a sense of delicate feeling there. And there's also this sense that things are off at a deeper level. And like you said, the mathematical way that it's off, it's both off and you can hear that it is off in some regular way that goes beyond someone's frailty. It just is this way. It falls out of sync. It's numbers that don't have a common factor. I think it's eight against 15 or something like that, where each one is playing steadily. Things are out of sync, but they're out of sync again, according to a kind of internal groove that the necessity of these asynchronous pulses. Also, this sound is echoing. It relates to our sense of the space. All of these aspects of it have ways of relating to the movie. It's a very rewarding kind of invention.
0: Yeah, indeed. So let me get back to that spot I teased a little while ago about where these different ingredients, these different textures intersect in a way that I think shows that they are allied with the different characters and forces in the movie. He goes further with this piano stuff. He introduces more complexity to indicate when Kirsten Dunst is becoming more unhinged herself. There's this moment where she gets upset and she runs outside and she's accompanied with this, yeah, out of phase, out of tune player piano stuff. And now there's another note in it and now Rose, there's the another matter? note in there that is doing its own thing.
2: <laughs> Rose,
0: And she goes outside and, go and talks to Jesse Plemons we about could, how she, she doesn't like it that it her son is going out want riding that. with Benioff on the back.
1: Him to be with Bill at all. Rose? Well,
0: for the two of them riding together, that He's regular plucked it. cello music comes back <laughs> and kind of interrupts Kirsten Dunst's piano texture, when we see Benedict Cumberbatch riding on the horse, and now there's a horn alongside the cello for Peter riding with him. And it's almost as though to say, well, now these things are aligned, and maybe they're allied, and things are going to be okay. Oh, but now the whole thing devolves into some dissonant string-like punctuation at the end. It's very easy to feel the feeling here. It's very easy to distill something ineffable about these relationships that makes the movie feel richer without you having to, you know, translate it into these kinds of explicit associations. It just really kind of injects it into you.
1: Yeah. Yes, sometimes you'll hear these dissonant clusters and kind of queasy sounds. And there's no simple answer to, well, who's queasier? What's wrong? Like What on screen is wrong right now that corresponds to that? Yeah, yeah. That means that the answer is, it's in everyone and everything. That sound informs everything here. And because the music has such a holistic take, your sense of empathy for the characters and the amount of dignity you afford all the characters is sort of even-handed in a way that is so valuable for the drama. It only makes the drama richer and more lasting to have every single character seem like they deserve the kind of investigation the music suggests. And the music doesn't say, this guy is bad, this guy is good, then this guy has his reasons and this guy doesn't. It just says, look, this is a way of seeing and feeling the hole here. And that was great. And the movie is unusual. Did you you see what was coming? I talked to some people who said, oh, I, I saw what was coming. I certainly did not. No, I didn't. Yeah.
0: But I was transfixed. I really was.
1: Yeah. All the performances, all of the relationships have this sense that they could go in any number of directions. There are some turns in people's relationships that are unpredictable, but they seem plausible within the kind of emotional space that the music, among many things, is mapping out for us here. Yes, people could have these strange second layers or changes of heart or secret capacities that we didn't see coming.
0: It felt to me like Greenwood was, a lot of the time, sketching out A certain kind of an uneasy stasis Mm -hmm. and he did that in a lot of different ways he had a lot of different speeds at which he could achieve a stasis you know there are these kind of blobby amorphous string pads that are kind of blobbing in and out of dissonance and just sort of sitting in the air in front of you But he can also have a faster moving stasis, like that initial plucking stuff.
1: Mm-hmm. Or he has a like a minimalist like a John Adams type thing where the strings are all going later.
0: It all just feels like it communicates so easily with the forces at play in this world, because There are these things that just are the way they are, but just a little bit of a push could tip them out of stasis, and Mm -hmm. they're uneasily resting where they are, but there are different forces causing them to fall that way, and just a little push can have big changes is just this intuitive feeling I got from so much of this music.
1: And this idea that's in, I think, a lot of Westerns, which is that these vast landscapes Have some implicit metaphor with psychological landscapes. And, you know, the exteriors are interiors, and that's what's so moving and evocative about the West. This music really plays right into that without any cliches of Westernness, but it absolutely meets it and understands that. And all of these landscape shots, some of which are accompanied by very small music, and yet it matches up. I had the thought this is like stuff I've said on other episodes about. Bernard Herman, that there's so much conviction and sincerity mm-hmm. in what is being done musically from someone who cares about every single element of music that it has the gravity, no matter how small it is, to match any size of image. You believe at every point in this music that Johnny Greenwood is really interested in music and is really interested in what each of these little things does and means. And because of that conviction, it meets this sense of scale that's so important to the Western in a very solid way. It's very satisfying to me. Yes,
0: sir. Talk about conviction. It takes a lot of conviction to go the step further that he goes, yet with the crazy textured player piano, when Kirsten Dunst gets even more upset and unhinged.
1: Yeah, and takes conviction on Jane Campion's part to dare to put this in the movie, but I'm so glad it
0: really does. What's she doing? This is a player piano out of control. He has programmed it to play in a way that a human could never play it. You know, it's like a it's like a wet robot. It, <laughs> it's just going out of control. Nice. And when you first hear it, like, it takes you a moment to understand, oh, okay, this is the score is really saying this. Like, this is not a sound coming out of the movie. You had to think about it for a second. But no, it's really daring to put that there. It made me feel just alive in the story.
1: Yeah, it's, like, cerebral in the very best sense. It encourages you to be thinking about what you were watching and experiencing you know, to contrast with the uh, what we were talking about earlier on this episode. And I was saying, look, manipulation is all well and good, but it's not exactly what I care about in music. I heard an interview where Jane Campion was saying she loved working with Johnny Greenwood because... Her words, most movie music is manipulation and she hates manipulation. Yeah, that's not what this is. This is not trying to call up some default responses from you. It's trying to... To
0: give you a new input.
1: Model thinking and open the space for thinking and it wakes you up rather than lulling you.
0: Yes, so before we wrap this up, I do also want to touch on a different material that he sets up, which is calmer and which is a little bit more straightforward of a musical thing to do that you might expect to have in a Western story. That is something that I would call, I think, the love theme. Mm-hmm. Feels to me like it was associated most with the relationship between Jesse Clements and Kirsten Dunst. Mm-hmm. And it's, I think, just so well calculated. feels, I think by design, simple and plain-spoken and sort of more recognizable as a tune, as in the world of music that one might play on a player piano or on a banjo, but it has some little unexpected moves in it. This chord here, oh, it's a little dogleg off to the side of where we thought we were going. And then it builds up, but written right into it, you hear this sense of taking some steps forward, but falling back. Well, you know, there's some false steps along the way, but we're still ultimately building up to a destination. And then when we do get to the destination, it therefore feels so earned. And it's just exactly how to feel about this relationship, I felt. It felt very immediate.
1: Mm -hmm. But everything you're saying also arises out of just being intrigued by all of the potentials of music itself. Yeah. Johnny Greenwood's scores always sound to me like someone who can't help but be caring about what music can be and do all the time. And yes, when he's doing beauty and love and gentleness, it seems like a more meaningful vision of beauty and love and gentleness because it still has all of this awareness of every potential place it could go or could not go right i also feel like we should just mention that when kirsten dunst in this movie is sort of pushed into playing the piano at a party
0: This is literally the stuff of nightmares. I it's have.
1: so well done. It's so, <laughs> it's such a wonderful depiction of how awful it feels to have to play the piano in front of people <laughs> and and say, you know, I'm not actually that good and no one believes you because they don't even care whether it's true. Such a great sequence. And Johnny Greenwood said he was asked to pick... The piece to make this all awful, and that it was his choice, and he, he said it was one of the proudest things he contributed to this movie. That he said Jane Campion said, Find a piece that is a famous classical piece and is also obviously bad. <laughs> and he picked this piece which is Rodetsky March by Johann Strauss Sr. is indeed a more famous than good piece <laughs> and especially in this dinky piano arrangement it's so perfect and i agree with him he should be proud of that like you said it's the stuff of nightmares how did they make it so strong the musical choice has a lot to do with it
0: yeah well i mean since you brought that up we should also mention what i think is a big takeaway scene from the movie that i've seen a lot of people talk about is the dueling banjo and piano face-off that he has with her when she's practicing. Yeah, it's wonderfully done and manages to pack all this animosity into these musical performances that are on screen in this case. But I wanted to take it as an opportunity to call out, again, some of the spotting decisions here, how the score feels propelled out of that source music scene to come in and... uh,
1: I think his string quintet or something just sort of jumps in and starts playing complicated harmonies that don't have to do with the music just heard.
0: No, it doesn't have to do with the music just heard, but the editing of it to have them just, like, be the necessary response immediately felt very potent. And there were some other moments like that, like uh, earlier spot where we see him playing his banjo and then he, like, gets frustrated and throws the banjo down on the bed and it makes, you know, an awkward don't-do-that-to-the-banjo-strings kind of noise. Mm -hmm. And then immediately, yeah, that propels these twisted strings to just emerge out of it very nicely considered in things like that. Again, things like that also happen later when he whistles vindictively at her and then Mm -hmm. music knows just what to do immediately afterwards. Just, yeah, wonderful consideration all around from Johnny Greenwood, from Jane Campion, from the editor and music editor. I really loved it.
1: Me too. Uh, I would now like to... Report a typo <laughs> in the end credits of this movie. The composer of There'll be a Hot Time in the Old Town Tonight is credited as Theodore A. Metz instead of Theodore A. Metz. <laughs> you can't get this on any other podcast. And now we'll see how much power we have because if it's corrected, I'm I'm pretty sure it'll be because of me.
0: Okay, wow. You know, I I saw a friend of mine opining online that he was distracted and taken out of the movie by the fact that the little plaque that has Bronco Henry's name above the saddle that is so important to Benedict Cumberbatch, the little plaque that says Bronco Henry and his dates and a friend on it's written in the Futura font, which had not been created yet in 1925.
1: So... Yes, I'm sorry to hear that. I am sorry to hear that, although I think a sort of a generic sans serif might have come close to Futura, but wouldn't have been actual Futura.
0: Anyway, Andy, it sounds to me like it's pretty clear that this is your favorite score of the lot.
1: Yeah, I kind of thought it was obvious. I assumed that John would think that too, but John, what does John think?
0: Yeah, it's very easy for me to say that as well. This is definitely what would get my vote to win the Oscar.
1: Right, and I think that's what we said about Phantom Thread and said, but that's not the actual Oscars, that's just us being silly. What will actually happen at the Oscars, John?
0: (sighs) I mean, I think Encanto probably gets it just. Really? Just cause. Oh. Just cause.
1: Oh, I'm coming out with an actual prediction this year. I, I have okay. weaseled away from it most times. All right,
0: all right. Well, I'm so eager to hear your prediction, but let me finish my prediction. My full prediction is Encanto probably gets it just because that's the easiest thing to think about in the ways that I said before. But I do see a possibility where if it really is a power of the dog sweep kind of night, if it is that movie's night, as you have said in the past, then this award could go along with it. So my prediction is, I've in Canto or Power of the Dog, depending on how the night goes. And I don't really see a scenario in which anything else could win. Wow. All right. Now your prediction. All
1: right. Now we've got to talk this out because I am daring to make an actual prediction this year, unlike previous years when I've said, what do I know? Okay. It seemed to me like the right prediction to make was Dune. Okay. It seems to me like people are going to say that was big. Hans Zimmer is famous. The music was obviously doing good and it got noisy at a few times that I can remember. And it's an amazing fantasy film, so it probably has the best score. And it seems like that... Has, uh, you know, Dune won the scoring awards at several of the warm up award ceremonies that have already happened. So I felt more and more confident as those things have happened. But you think that's not likely. Why not, John? <sighs>
0: Because everybody knows that Hans Zimmer does that and has done that well for many things in the past, so it can't be worth thinking about him doing it in this case. It's mm-hmm. much more interesting to think about Germain Franco doing it, or it's much more interesting to think about Johnny Greenwood doing it. And they haven't won before, and he has, even though what he, what he won for would be the same thing that Germain Franco is winning for this time.
1: Perhaps, as usual, my cynicism is behind the cynicism curve, and you are actually up to the hottest, most up-to-date cynicism. You may be right, but uh, that was my gut feeling, so that's what I'm sticking with.
0: Okay, look, I would love to be wrong. I would be totally fine with it if Hans Zimmer won, because he should have an award for this kind of a thing. You know, his Oscar for The Lion King doesn't represent who he is as a composer and what he's contributed to cinema, and Dune really does, and so I would be perfectly happy for that to be recognized.
1: All right, well, we'll see. Actually, we won't. We'll be told.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. Good point. We won't see it happen. We'll see it have happened. (laughs) Bleh. On that book, maybe it's time for us to uh, cast our gaze elsewhere and see what the bucket has in store for us for our own odyssey through the film music landscape.
1: Yeah. Get out that uh, lottery sound. There it is.
0: All right. Okie dokie. Listen to those lottery balls go. I'm looking at them go naturally. And here I am, sticking in my hand, pick one out, what's it going to be? Oh boy! I have got the 2004 score by Michael Giacchino for The Incredibles, the Pixar movie.
1: Uh Aha! Many listeners have said, why don't we talk about a Michael Giacchino score one of these days? And the day has finally come.
0: And this is a great one to talk about. I am excited. I loved this movie.
1: Yeah, I remember the sound of this. This is a whole other sound than anything we've ever talked about. This will be cool.
0: I think it's going to be super cool. And I do know for a fact that many of our listeners will also be excited that this was what came out of the ball machine because... We have recently started a Patreon, and one of the ways that we're excited to involve our patrons is that we ask them to vote to help narrow down the balls that go into the ball machine.
1: Right. This score was in contention for the upcoming episode because it earned its way in through the vote on Patreon. And if you want to be in on the vote, come on down and join us there.
0: Yeah, we've got bonus episodes of extra content waiting for you on Patreon as well. And in addition to Patreon, you can reach us on Twitter at Scoresettlers. You can always write us reviews. That helps us, too. And we thank all of our listeners for all of their listening.
1: Yeah, good job listening to this one. (laughs) (laughs) This episode took up about uh, 12,000% of the time that will be devoted to this category on the Oscars broadcast. So, well done.
0: All
1: right, we'll see you next time. Yeah,
0: we'll see you then. Incredibles next time. Looking forward to it. Good night, everybody.
1: Night.